Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. Celebrating 75 years of excellence in social work education. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. Today's podcast is the third in a series of three featuring Professor Deborah Waldrop in a discussion about her research on end-of-life care for our nation's elderly. Professor Waldrop is an expert in end-of-life care, a Hartford scholar, and a faculty member at the School of Social Work with 25 years of practice experience. In this segment, Professor Waldrop gives us a status report on the progress she's made in her research on end-of-life care decision-making and what she's learned thus far, sharing with us participant experiences in their own words. I have, as of yesterday afternoon at 4 o'clock, conducted 53 interviews. And I, I lump them together as interviews. The, some of them are with patients, some of them are with caregivers. I've seen 47 caregivers, 28 hospice patients, 41 of which have been from Hospice Buffalo and 12 from Chautauqua. Um, and again, their, sample, their um, patient average daily census is smaller, so the numbers would expect to be smaller. I've done joint interviews in 20 situations where the person and a caregiver participate together. I've interviewed 25 patients alone, just by them, you know, who wanted to just participate themselves. So I'm sorry, the caregiver alone was 25, not the patient. Eight patients alone. Um, in, in eight situations, the patient had died, but the caregiver wanted to participate, and 15 people were just unable to participate, either because of dementia or very late stage cognitive changes. I have, again, the 28 patient participants, about half and half, cancer versus other. Um, I have, and here are the, here's the breakdown, and I think this is pretty significant. Um, spouses primarily, spouses and children, which is what you expect in all the caregiving literature, that's who, who's performing caregiving. What I think is really interesting is 81% are female, and that's not necessarily reflective of what I see in the literature. What we are finding is that men may not claim caregiving as one of their roles, but men are very involved in caregiving in many, many ways. So. Um, it just may be those people who, who agreed to participate in this project, but just to give you an idea. Um, all family, all blood relatives at this point, no, um, no partners and no um, good friends. Let me introduce Victoria to you. And Victoria is an 86-year-old woman who was developing ascites in her belly and was uncertain what that really was about for her. And she, was, she knew it was bad. She didn't know what that meant. And finally, when she, when she was having trouble, her family took her to the hospital. And after they drained the fluid, the abdominal fluid, she said the second day after they drained it, this girl came in. She sat on the bed and introduced herself. I forgot her name, but she told me, I'm so-and-so from hospice. I said, I'm not ready to go to hospice. She said, no, I'm just, we're going to fill out some forms. We're going to help you, but we'll send a nurse to your home. You don't have to go anywhere. Um, so in, instead of calling the doctor, a lot of times, if you can't get him, we'll be there. So see, I told her I thought it, um, that made me comfortable, and I'm, I'm not ready to go anywhere, but if you want to come to my house, that's okay. So understanding was a part of developing the decision was, no, I'm not going to say yes if it means I have to move, but if you're coming to my house, that's okay. Here's what the S family said. This, in this family, the family made the decision. She said, we were told right at this diagnosis, this is a wife, that he was eligible for hospice, that we could call hospice for assistance because he was metastatic cancer stage four. 
um, and that meant he was eligible. He was healthy, he was up and driving, cooking, shopping, and doing everything. And I said, we don't need hospice. Well, then we hit a medication donut hole. Um, I said to him, we need to have hospice come in because they will help us with the cost of your other drugs. So we had them come out to the house, and we had already learned about this from them, but um, we didn't need them at that point. And when we hit the donut hole, we needed them. So there's a certain point at which people had gathered information, and they, they held it sort of in their, their bank, if you will, bank account, until the time came. So that was how that family made the decision. Another family coming together at the very, very end, very end stage. And this family said, um, Dr. N has always been with us, you know, a patient helping hand. Joyce is the wife and, and the patient who said, I'm, you know, I've been doing everything, I guess you could say, as a team. Anyhow, we went through it, and each time we went to the doctor, the estimates went down. They went down from 60% survival or whatever and kept going down. The last time we went in, again, we got a lot of respect for him because he was concerned about my wellness. But the last time he said, you have three options left. There's a 5% option you'll have a success with chemo, 20% with some experimental drug, um, and the third option for you is hospice. And he said, this was the first time hospice was brought up to me. So we went for a second opinion, and he told us exactly the same thing. So this was a real com combined effort between the patient who was dying, his family, and the physician. My favorite is when the doctor makes the decision. And there are a certain number of situations in which Nobody had anything else to say except the doctor. And the doctor said, you're going to hospice, period, no more discussion. And I have two of these um, that I really liked. One of them is very simple, straightforward. Whatever the doctor says I should do, I do. Okay, that makes that decision. And the other one was um, a wife who said, I would jump off one of the Alps if Dr. S told me to do so. I have that much faith in him. Then I just figured that if he thought Bill needed hospice, we were going with hospice. And the other thing I'm de developing is not just who made the decision, but what about the typology? Where, where does it about the factors that really shape how this decision was made? And I think these are really interesting. And so there's two parts that I've begun to see in these transcripts. First of all, this is how we're defining the chronic illnesses. It's non-cancer. And what happens in the trajectory of a chronic illness is really very different than what happens in cancer, where you may reach an end of treatment point. And so what happened in many of the non-cancer situations is there was an imminent crisis, and they thought the person was going to die. They were either having trouble breathing, they were rushed to the hospital, and there was an imminent end-of-life crisis. Um, what happened, though, is that they were stabilized, and hospice picked them up, thinking they would usher them through the last couple of days. But what happened is the care changed to care management because the person lived. And so what happens is they go home with these people, and they follow them sometimes for months to years and really take on a new role that has not been something we've seen in hospice, and that's about care management. It's about managing to keep somebody stable and in the home environment. We reach this crisis, right? We reach a place where um, people are, you know, just in a, maybe not an end-of-life crisis, but they've lost function or they've declined to a place where they simply can't manage. And so now they're at a place where, do I go home with hospice or do I go elsewhere? And that might, elsewhere might be a nursing home or a skilled facility, and that's not where people want to go. So what happens is hospice can keep you at home. Hospice can help manage your drugs. They can manage your care routines. They're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week by phone and to come out if you need that. And so in many of these situations, the care decision really becomes, I want to go home and they're gonna, because hospice can help me stay there. With cancer, what I'm really finding are there's two types of decisions that are separate and distinct. One is a transitional decision. Um, the end of, someone reaches the end of chemo and radiation, and there's a progression to end-stage care. 
I couldn't take any more chemo. I've never had any except tamoxifen, and I wasn't going to do that other stuff. So the doctor said, there's no use in coming here if you're not going to take chemotherapy. Um, if, and so the only other option I have to offer you is hospice. So he ordered hospice for me. So there's this sort of fork in the road. If you're not going to continue in chemo, then you can go to hospice kind of thing. Whereas there's another different kind of evolving decision that I'm also seeing, and that is what I would call the evolutional decision, where over the course of time, you know, maybe chemo is done, radiation's done, there isn't anything more, but you really weren't feeling ready, or the person really wasn't feeling ready to go. Um, to end-stage care, and so there's changes in functional status. It's really more about um, decline, uh, you know, inability to get to the bathroom or inability to get um, in and out of bed or, or out of the house, those kinds of things. And so um, without the treatment decision, it's just the final progression of the illness, and there comes a point at which the family may say, you know what, we can't do this anymore, and already the end-stage decision-making has been made. So in other words, they don't want to go back to a hospital. They don't want anything more life-sustaining or more um, heroic. And so what happens is hospice is called in to be able to keep somebody at home. So that's different than a sort of fork in the road. It's more or less sort of an erosion over time, and they reach a, a crisis point at which hospice becomes available to or able to help with that. There are the other than disease-related. These are some of the crisis situations that I heard a lot about. There's caregiving system breakdown, and by that I mean, I don't know how many of you have ever been a caregiver or, or caregivers now, but it is hard work. It's very hard work. It's 24-7, and at times people become tired. You know, people's own illnesses and own life situations can sometimes really crumble what's a strong caregiving system at some point. And so what happens is it breaks down somehow, some way. And what hospice comes in to do is to provide what I'm calling care supplementation. They can bring in volunteers. They can bring in nurse aides to help with bathing and management, daily routine management. So they supplement what the care system is unable to do any longer. Um, another one is um, resource management. It's needing another person to help with grocery shopping or lawn care. It might be um, paying for and having medicines delivered to the house when somebody can't get, go out anymore to do it. It may be that it's time for a hospital bed or a wheelchair or a bedside commode and hospice pays for it. But it's somewhere or the other that what hospice brings in, and it's not the ideological, this is what hospice is all about, but that's what, that's what people really need is some kind of resource management. So that's another sort of decision category is how can we get our needs met? It's not, oh, well, I've just been waiting to go to hospice. It's like, okay, they're available, they can do it. And then finally, instead of one decision, there's a series of decisions. Um, and I think this is something that's going to require a lot of reiterative work with these transcripts, is just to really pull out and tease out all the different kinds of decisions that people are making across the trajectory of an illness. To start hospice or not to start it, when to start it, if you should stay. Figuring out as you go along where you want the death to occur and what you want death to look like. Because in many of these, it's not, you know, it's not what you think of on TV where, oh my gosh, she's dying, call hospice, she's gone. It's very slow, it's very gradual, it's very much of a, of a process. And so what's a, a, real, a real awareness for me is it isn't one decision, it's a series of decisions. And that's what we also need to really understand is not only when to start, but to continue and how to use the services. Is it just a whole other, I think will be a whole other part of this that will come through because I've heard a lot of those kinds of stories. It brings me to submission of an, um, a, a request for proposals to, or request for abstracts, letters of intent actually, to the American Cancer Society, where I'm going to take away the other diagnoses and look specifically at 
the decision to use hospice based on cancer diagnosis because we know that that's pretty different too. The diagnosis of something like pancreatic cancer or lung cancer is different than the diagnosis of stage four breast cancer. The timing is very different. So I'm going to look at, I'm going to do a stratified sampling for that. I'm going to resubmit the NCI, um, the NCI proposal that I, I uh, submitted a, a year and a half ago because they're still looking at clinical decision making in cancer care. And for me, this is, you know, this is one of those big clinical decisions. And then I'm going to continue to explore the relationship between location and end-of-life services. And I'm going to reach out, um, pack my bags, and head out for Little Valley, Delavan, Perry, Batavia, and do some work in the rural areas of the, of the region to see what the decision looks like out there, because it may be vastly different where they're, they're not as well-resourced as we are in this region. So thank you for listening. You've been listening to the third of three podcasts featuring Professor Deborah Waldruff discuss her research on end-of-life care decision-making. Visit our website to hear parts one and two of this series and other Living Proof podcasts. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our school is celebrating 75 years of research, teaching, and service to the community. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.